Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles producer Trent here. Remember you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get extra goodies, extended editions of each and every episode of Book Shambles. And most importantly, your support on Patreon means we can keep making the podcast and all the other stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles as well. Lots of live events are back on the agenda. It is very good to be able to say that. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People coming up in December at King's Place. Five nights there. Also at King's Place on November 8, Robin is doing a special London launch event for his book, The Importance of Being Interested, with Robin and Katie Mack and Helen Chersky and Helen Zaltzman, Hugh Warwick and David McCormont. Also, Robin is still on his 100 bookshops tour. It's actually 112 bookshops. That doesn't have as nice a ring to it. And also, it you know, if you've got 100 bookshops, why not run over to 112? It's very much the Cosmic Shambles way. Go to cosmicshambles.com slash 100 bookshops to find out where Robin's going to be. Odds are he's either been near you or is about to be near you soon. And the other tour that we're looking after at Cosmic Shambles at the moment is the Rutherford and Fry Tour, which is being presented by JSM Events in association with the Cosmic Shambles Network. Rutherford and Fry's Guide to Absolutely Everything. That came out earlier this month on the same day as Robin's book, The Importance of Being Interested. In fact, you can get signed copies of both of those books from the Cosmic Shambles Bookshop. The URL for that is cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. And so it's appropriate that our guests on today's show are Adam Rutherford and Hannah Fry. And here they are with Robin. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Josie's not here and I'm not at home. So that means also if the, if the mic quality is not as good as usual, because I'm on this 112 bookshop tour, I'm currently in a very nice front room in, uh, in Shoreham. So uh, apologies for any uh, tattiness in sound quality. Uh, but we have such wonderful guests that I think we're going to rise above that uh, because we uh, are joined by, I suppose, really, my my main competitors. I think they've won this game in terms of uh, popular science uh, books. I think they definitely sold a lot more than my book uh, with their latest book because my book was like kind of the importance of being interested, which means that it might not cover everything, whereas they gave, in many ways, maybe a false statement uh, that they were going to give you a guide to absolutely everything that's what that's what we like to do robin is uh is over promise and under deliver that's uh yeah i mean i i think <laughs> as two people who've spent so long working in evidence-based careers uh the <laughs> fact that you've offered something which at the, the merest the slightest scrutiny we discover that it falls down under evidence you know that it's uh in one way it's both a disappointment and a joy well you know i think that we've really really covered ourselves both legally and intellectually but with the simple addition of an asterisk on the front cover which points to a word at the bottom which says abridged. Well, see, the trouble is that I always see that asterisk as uh, being one of Kurt Vonnegut's uh, um, anal cartoons. So I didn't realise that <laughs> led to anywhere. That's that's one of the problems with uh, reading Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, um, that was actually the intention all along, was just to just, <laughs> just put an anal cartoon on. And the there is a bit of Kurt Vonnegut in there as well. We've got a whole whole section on the uh, Tralmaphodorians. Yeah, um, no, which is great. Which annoyingly is in, in, I also deal with in my book. So it, it, I can see why people, everything that I thought would make mine <laughs> special, it turns out has been ruined by you. Um, see, if I, I have to say that you know, with, with an asterisk, uh, if, if it had been Hannah's book, I would have known that it was for, you know, leading to, but it's just that you, because you're a biologist, Adam, and therefore more Freudian from your perspective, I, I can never trust those things. Wow. I mean, I'll accept biologist as an accusation, but. To, to level me as a Freudian, that's, I mean, that's, that's possibly actionable. Well, to be fair, it's not because you're a biologist that you're a Freudian. It's just <laughs> my observation. Really like which, I mean, not so much a Freudian in your beliefs, but someone who should definitely be on a Freudian couch. Perhaps that's what I should say. Um, the, uh... A fair assessment, I think, overall. A fair <laughs> oh, <assessment>. thanks. <laughs> thanks. We have actually had, you know how we put the, the abridged on it? And we actually have had messages from people who, who are really cross that they can't find the full version. Yeah, oh, that's great. 
Yeah, well, this is like, you know, one of my previous books was, a, was called A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, the title of which is explained very thoroughly in the book, but literally people writing in saying, this isn't about everyone who's ever lived. I'm not in here and nor are the following people. Yeah. Now, do you think they're doing that out of joy and delight? Or do you think they generally felt that someone had written a book in which everyone was in it? Because that would be more of a directory, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, phone book. That, that, that's like that scene in The Jerk where he gets really excited because the tele local telephone directory turns up and he picks it up and he reads it. He goes, I'm in it, I'm in it. And that's, I can imagine that a lot of people <laughs> bought the book going, finally, I'm in a book. Oh, oh I'm not in this. <laughs> Do you think this misleading people with titles is, is going to just keep working for you? The thing is, I actually, you know... I when you go into the book, actually, I don't think that we are that misleading. I mean, it takes us at least <laughs> at least 8,000 words to explain why we're not being misleading. But the, the whole idea that we open the book with is uh, that if you really do have absolutely everything, 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 well, you kind of need a guide to take you through it. Otherwise, it's as good as having nothing. So we start the story. We start the book with um, with a, a short story about the Library of Babel, which is a, a story by uh, Jorge Borges, whose name I can never <laughs> never pronounce. But I, I'm exactly the same. I, I didn't read some of his books because I I would have to go into the bookshop and ask. Because yeah, Borges is, is 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 I mean such a yeah beautiful writer. But that English embarrassment, which means sometimes sometimes we don't go into great literature because it's that kind of rather dull middle ground <laughs> nature of Englishness. And sometimes it's due to the fear of uh, the shame of mispronunciation. So I had actually read quite a few of his st short stories and I found myself, this is a couple of years ago, I was, in, I was actually in uh, Silicon Valley at a big meeting at Facebook. And I was talking to a really learned professor, somebody I really admire intellectually. And I was t talking to him about one of these stories, in fact, about the Library of Babel. And I was like, you know that story by Georgie Borgie? <laughs> um, and I, that's genuinely how I pronounced it. He put me in my place. But, you know, you should never shame people uh, who pronounce things incorrectly because they, the chances are they, they learned it through extensive reading. So that's my, that's my justification. I'm sticking to it. Oh no, I think no, I totally agree. I think it's a um I mean I, I think it's almost one of the problems with with science and communicating science is people are so fearful of saying something wrong that they would rather not ask you or Adam something in case it's like, oh, I, I got that slightly wrong. And and I think you know that's something that we really need to overcome, or you don't journey into any ideas for for this kind of you know fear of embarrassment. Well, there's a there's a balance there, isn't there? Because there's a there's a whole we're in an era when people are very, very willing to charge into conversations without any recognition that they might possibly be wrong. And then at the other end of the scale, you've got scientists who should, in principle, be morally wed to being as wrong as often as possible. But that is very contextual, right? You don't just barge into, I don't start thinking about infinity theory and just say something that is quite obviously speaking, talking completely out of my ass, uh, because Hannah would correct me very very quickly so there's a let you have to get to it this is, this is i always think about this in terms of how you teach science because you have to get to a level before you recognize where the problems lie right so you've got to have a basis of knowledge before you can say i definitely want to be wrong on the next question because that's how we make progress and learn new things so you have to know you have, you have to know where you're wrong before you can start to to deliberately be wrong or something yeah but um, isn't the thing that connects both of those things you just said though, Adam, about um, people diving into conversations and uh, having claiming to have more knowledge than they than they actually do, and simultaneously about being scientific? Isn't this like fundamental idea though, actually just accepting being wrong rather than it being something you should shy away from? I think it is anyway. I think like well, well, I'm very well, pro intellectual humility. I think Adam's statement is slightly different to what I was kind of saying, which is I think. The questions I'm talking about are which come from genuine curiosity, not questions that are really statements in which someone wants to prove their point. So I when I'm talking about is people who really do want to enter, they want to ask you questions about, you know, the, the, the nature of matter, uh, the nature of genetics, whatever it is, and they're worried about getting the, the terms right is very different to someone going hell for leather into a conversation because they want to show what they know. That's, that's not really curiosity, is it? No, I agree. And I, and I think people definitely shouldn't be concerned about that, because, in fact, actually, some of the um, 
you know, Adam and I have been doing our radio show for five years or whatever it is, however long we've been doing it. Um, And in that time, I think that the best questions that we've had have been ones that on the surface seem like they're quite foolish questions. Um, I think one of our, both of our favourites of all time was what's the smallest dinosaur, which sounds like a really, okay, and it's, and it's a name of small dinosaur. Thank you very much. (laughs) And there you go, the end. But actually, once you go into that question, there's this whole world of stuff that you have to uncover. Um, and I don't really care when people get, uh, I mean, it's going back to making, um, pronouncing words wrong. I don't care when people use the wrong terminology. I don't care um, if people think that their question is, is simple, overly simple or foolish. I think that if somebody has genuine curiosity, there's always something interesting to uncover. Yeah, I would agree. There's one that I've been talking about quite a lot while I'm doing this book tour is uh, a 10 year old who asked me, how can I work out for certain that I'm not merely a character in someone else's dream? Great question. And and that is such an interesting, it, it, it's about perception, about the physical world. It's about, you know, we, we every time that you thought you'd got somewhere to at least proving that she wasn't a Boltzmann brain or something like that, then you'd go, ah, but. And so it was a really rich conversation. And some, t- some I think some people would just, it, it's that old thing, isn't it, that with Mark Steele used to do, you know, the routine about those parents who would just say, because you're not, because it isn't, because, you know, and that, that bit, which is, but actually then to go on that journey beyond the abrupt end of a question uh, is, is uh, yeah, as you said, I, I don't know what the, a really stupid question is, because... I, I think the only questions that are bad questions are that one that we were just saying, which is a question that has been asked merely to prove a point which the person believes already with a level of certainty. And then that's not really a question in some ways. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Adam's looking pensive. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how we do, you know, how, how we teach, because there is a, there's a sort of inherent conundrum in this conversation, which I don't know how to get over, which is, and we talk about this a little bit in the book, and I know all three of us have talked it extensively in our work over the years, but it's that, you know, the notion that we are inherently curious, I think is mostly true. I've definitely met lots of children who are just not that curious and don't uh, don't care about asking things, asking the question, you know, how does that actually work? So there's a romanticized notion, which I, I know a lot of the sort of senior science communicators say, well, you know, children are naturally curious and we teach it out of them and we have to teach it back into them. I mean, that's just not true. Some children aren't interested in how the world works, but a lot of them are. And then they go through this process of describing how, well, there is this natural curiosity and scientists need to revisit that natural curiosity that children have in order to answer the questions, the fundamental question in science, which is how does this work, right? That's, that's, all, that's all we're asking in every situation, in every, in, in every science. And I also don't think that's true either because, and, and this is really fundamentally what the book is about. You have to learn how to be a scientist in order to answer the curious questions in ways that are testable and demonstrably correct. And so, Children are not natural scientists. They are naturally curious, but that's not the same thing. You have to train to think in such a way that you can extract meaningful information from the universe because everything about our physiology, psychology, and history, evolutionary history, tells us things which are fundamentally incorrect about the universe. And science is the process of extracting all of that wrongness from our ability to see the universe as it really is rather than how we perceive it to be mm. yes um the uh <laughs> i feel uh, like that too robin often it's, it's an interesting <laughs> one in terms of the naturally curious because of course we have and, and you know from from your work and you know that nature nurture thing that bit of you know it's it's in a very early stage that we might imagine that a child might start finding their curiosity is being shut down so, you know, I don't want to go into, you know, we're all born free and end up in chains or any of that stuff, but it's an interesting, and you are right, there's different, in the same way that it appears that there are probably different levels of consciousness in different human beings, that it's not like the idea that different species have different levels of consciousness alone, it's also that within our species, so I think I can see in some ways what you kind of mean by that. I think when you get really little children, I think all of them ask the why question, don't they? I'm talking like two and three. Yeah. Do you reckon there's some kids that just never ask why, never go through that phase? 
yeah i mean there's not so you know the this is to do with nature and nurture because we aren't born free we're not blank slates we are already shackled to um genetic and socially environmental cues which fundamentally limit our all of our psychological and physical behaviors so I, I, that doesn't mean that the environment doesn't heavily influence those things and can correct or change the genetic influence but we're not blank slates people are not born the same people have natural genetic predispositions to all sorts of behavioral traits and that includes things like curiosity or um, I think I, I think it's a definition thing here as well though because I'm thinking about in terms of um, machine learning and artificial intelligence and trying to create um, that thirst for for learning that, that exists within humans. And I guess if you're talking about, yeah, of course, not every child age four years old is going to be desperate to know about what the names of the planets are. Like, of course, that's not true. But I, but I also think that actually it's, it's not right to say that curiosity isn't an inherently human trait because I think it depends on your definition. Because I think if you describe curiosity as, you know, when, what happens when you stack blocks together, um, and you know when do they fall, or what happens when you smash a, a something against a, um, a pan or against a wall, and what sound does it make? I think that actually the way that we explore the world and the way that we uh, become able of interacting with the world actually is driven by curiosity. I mean, this is something that the, the AI researchers really exploit: is that you code in curiosity, and therefore learning happens as a natural consequence of that. Not necessarily academic learning, but just just learning about the world. Sure, sure. Well, I think I think you're right. That this is a semantic question from fundamentally, because it depends what you mean by curiosity. And whilst not all children are interested in stacking blocks and not all children are interested in asking how something works or the naming the planets in that very sort of more traditional scientific way, there's just variance in behavior. There's just very, you know, some children do some things and some children do other things. You can find out what the things that they do and like doing are and then sort of really focus in on them and develop them into what you might more traditionally describe as curiosity or a scientific methodology for understanding the world or you can identify the things they're not good at and do the same in order to nurture them to nurture those those particular abilities but i think that we're just not that there's just natural variance in human behaviors across the board not all children want to want to stack blocks not all children are, are are fundamentally interested in how things work regardless of whether we encourage that particular behavior or not god i'm sounding like a I think I think though that's a very I don't think that's the main concern because I'm far more rather than immediately go justify the well do you know what some kids just aren't interested I'm much more interested in thinking about all those kids who have their interest and curiosity shut down and you see that on public transport all the time you see the way that certain you know that kind of shut up the child and all you know there's a, I'm 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 sure you what you're saying is true but I also think that that, that to me is the minor concern you know, that we should not expect all children to immediately go, oh, father, I've been on the beach and found the most fascinating shells and blah, 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 and then make a huge collage out of it and then develop some kind of tree of life theory. But I think we should... Enough have... about your childhood. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, and Could you stop sending them in to me as well? I'm not <laughs> going to read them. The Turner Prize, I think, is, uh, is still possibly mine with, the, with my shell work um, and my pasta work as well, all of those things. Um, but I, I think, you know, that is the, the important bit is, first of all, to look at... I mean, some of the teachers that I spoke to for, for, for my book, you know, were saying the problem that they find is that when it gets to science education on a certain level, suddenly it's loads of memorizing equations and mm. there's a detachment from what can seem like the, the world around you and that that's where the alienation comes. And also that what sometimes happens is that, and I don't know if I'll ask this both of you, which is um, there's a sense from some science teachers that science is taught in a way to narrow down who's going to be the scientist. So it's specifically like more than history or English literature or geography, it is taught to go who are going to be the scientists in the room. Yeah, I think this is, this, I, I, so, so the, the thing I was saying a minute ago about, about children having natural variants, I mean, that's sort of unequivocally true, but that doesn't have any political, inherent political valence to it, to what I said. It just means, and I think this is, this is what you're referring to here, is that we identify particular traits and then we really focus in on them to the extent that in education we possibly fetishize them and therefore don't necessarily bring out the, the the differential talents that all sorts of children have because we say this is important if you if you're interested in stacking blocks then you're probably going to be a scientist or, or whatever it is do you, do you know the peter medawar quote 
which I think is so important about the different types of scientists there are. Um, can I read it out? Yeah. So he, Medawar said, there's no such thing as a scientific mind. Scientists are people of very dissimilar temperaments doing different things in very different ways. Among scientists are collectors, classifiers, compulsive tidiers up. Many are de detectives by temperament, many are explorers, some are artists and other artisans. There are poet scientists and philosopher scientists and even a few mystics. What sort of mind or temperament can all these people be supposed to have in common? Obligative scientists must be very rare. And most people who are in fact scientists could easily have been something else instead. That, that's how I think about, about how we think about science, how we teach science and how we teach science wrong and how we think about potential in small humans. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. So when you were putting together a guide, because I presume that one or other of you would have been this kind of voice of sanity as you suddenly look at this, this post-it note wall. <laughs> how do you work out if you're going to do an abridged guide to absolutely everything what do you decide how does that process start because i presume you ended up with a vast kind of wall real or metaphorical which just had you know that's a great story and that's a beautiful story and that is really fascinating i mean how did you start to work out what was going to be in the book basically it is the, the sort of origin myth that we tell that we tell each other and we tell in interviews is true that basically we just text each other every day sometimes multiple times a day and more often than not if it's not i need to be here at 12 30 or you know really really why aren't you here it's 12 35 <laughs> yes <laughs> do you know where you're meant to be in 10 minutes time because <laughs> i'm in earl's court at the moment things like that other than those those messages they they're they're, they're stories right you know we say did you know this or you know have you seen this or can you explain this to me? And, and you know, I, th I think that I always remember is, is <laughs> sending Hannah a paper, which was about an area of research that I've worked on and written about, um, but features a lot of maths. And I don't really understand the maths. And when I, I use the word really as a substitute for at all, but I can read and understand the broad principles and the, the, the evolutionary ideas that are being examined and tested using the maths and and I sent her a paper and she, she responded and, and, and in fact I didn't even tell you what the context of it was I just said have a look at this and about 30 seconds later she wrote back and just went that is absolutely beautiful this is what it shows also not knowing the context and immediately at that point you just think well you know there's a whole language here which I can't speak um, but that Hannah can and mathematicians can, or, or you know, good statisticians, which is our methodology for understanding the 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 the, the subject that I've spent my life being interested in and, and and writing about, and I sort of wish I could understand it. And I think if I devoted a lot of energy and sweat to it, I probably could get about thirty two percent of the way. But that's not my skill set. My skill set is being able to look at different and complex ideas and. And and sort of fuse them. So, what was the question again? It was about how we came up with the <laughs> post-it notes. So, it's as you right. can see, I'm the one with the post-it notes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, uh, what 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 generally happens is Adam's right that we have this uh, this. I mean, essentially, our WhatsApp conversations is like a catalogue of like interesting stuff. But it, to to get that into some kind of order. Um, I think it's fair to say I'm the post-it note person. <laughs> There's an element of panel beating that goes on. I think one thing that's worth saying, we got this review, this American review um, in an American uh, magazine about our book. And it said that it was, um, and I was so proud about this because I think that they really nailed what we were aiming for without uh, us ever deliberately deciding that this was the aim. And they said it was compelling popular science with an ambitious underlying theme. And it's that second half of the sentence that was so important to me, certainly. And after I persuaded him, Adam, <laughs> because there would be all of these stories. And I'd be like, Adam, I think we should do infinity, free will, 
uh, and maybe also umwelts, like our, our, you know, the, the construction of reality in our heads. And uh, initially, Adam was like, that sounds horrendous. I don't want to do it. But then as soon as you start and actually start filling it in with those little stories, as Adam, you know, as, as Adam just um, mentioned a minute ago, actually, I think that that is really what makes this book not just one of those I'll kind of throw it out. Here's a collection of stories. There really, really is an underlying thesis to this book. It's not just it's not just this bunch of stuff together. It's really about who we are, how we understand what we know and 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 and, and really, I guess, what our place is in this in this universe. I really think that's that's what we are aiming for. And we just do it in a very roundabout way. There's a lot of cul-de-sacs and the, the, the footnote and the, the the box text really got us out of a lot of structural <laughs> holes by saying, here's a thing which I think is really, really funny or interesting or scientifically important, but we just can't fit it into the narrative. And we go, okay, just well, let's just pop that there. Um, so one review of, of my solo book said the footnotes are the best bit, which I take as both a compliment and an insult. <laughs> a neg is a neg. Yeah, a neg. <laughs> so what, I mean, you've started doing live shows about the book as well, and the book's been out for about three weeks now. What are you, I presume you're getting feedback in terms of what ideas are really sticking with people. Is there, is there something which you kind of, you, you've begun to go, ah, right, this is interesting. Sometimes it might even be the footnote or something that was just placed in a little kind of, you know, almost caption box where you just go, oh, wow, this is, I mean, have you been surprised by any of the uh, the kind of the, those ideas which have really grabbed people? Not so much surprise. In some cases, um, pleased. In other cases, sort of, you know, expected and slightly disappointed. I'll give you an example of, of one or the other. One of the chapters, which is about how time works and how we, how how um, things like the second and the hour and the, the year are defined. And it starts with a, it starts with a story that Hannah told me. One, you know, in one of those texts, which is about how the there is this secret cable that runs under the Thames from Teddington, the National Physical Laboratory to uh, the city of London and that cable funded by the bankers and the stockbrokers of the city is the fastest and most accurate timekeeping um, conduit in in the world right and the reasons for it we then go into in the book but um, and, and then we go on off on this you know sort of semi-tangential journey and understanding why it is the time what, what is time and why it is the, the, the way it is now a lot of people have picked up on that story because it's it's got all the elements of good story um it's got you know interesting science it's got a big why question why is the fastest time conduit between the city of london and the national physical laboratory and there's it's a good sort of journalistic angle to it which is that uh, to do with why it exists in the first place and basically it's to do with money grubby money right so lots of people have picked up on that as a story as an example of what you know one of the fun stories um and and really an exemplar of what Hannah was saying a minute ago about how you ask this question and it takes you in all sorts of different directions and we're the we're, we're trying to be your your sort of curator or, or lead on that and there's other bits literally a, a footnote in the, <laughs> in the daily mail gave us a very nice review last last friday uh, which we were very pleased with um, but it, it hinged, the headline and the stand first and the beginning of the article hinged on a single footnote on page two, which made me think that maybe they hadn't read the whole book. But on the other hand, I sort of don't care because the overall review was good. And it was about how the thing, something that lots of people have written about, but maybe isn't as well known as, as we might think within the science communication world, which is that sugar doesn't make children go nuts at parties and there's been experiments done on this um randomized trials and yeah, you know this as well as i do robin that we just know that children go nuts at parties because they're parties regardless of what what you give them what you feed them and so that was a good example of the fact that they latched onto that someone read that i went no that's so cool that's amazing we're gonna leave with that it's literally two sentences in a footnote in the introduction so one of the reasons I, I like I like talking about stuff in public and we, we're doing this tour where we're doing exactly that um, right now is because you never know what's going to land with the audience. You never quite know the things that I think are fascinating. I definitely know, but not everyone finds them fascinating because mostly, you know, when I say things Hannah says, yeah, that's really boring. <laughs> um, but, but you just never can tell 
where you know when the you as a performer you must know this better than anyone you know you write a joke and you sit at home and read it back to yourself and think that's the funniest thing in the world you stand on stage and do it and it just doesn't land and other things which are throwaway remarks uh, actually really resonate yeah i think this what what i mean what for you hannah was the thing that you most delighted in when you two were writing this was was there an idea which started off as being something where you think oh yeah well this is kind of interesting and then as you kind of fell further and further into it is there, is there anything which gave you a kind of a damascene moment oh yeah i mean i really like that i really like the library stuff at the beginning but i think overall my favorite thing in the whole book is about, <laughs> about christopher columbus <laughs> so um basically uh christopher columbus i mean he wasn't a very nice man let's just uh put that out there um, I would even go as far as to say that he was bad <laughs> as a human. Anyway, he was also quite bad at maths. And uh, on one of his voyages, he got his sums wrong and couldn't work out where the North Star was and had it as though it was moving erratically around the sky. And um, rather than be like, oh, something's gone wrong here, I've, I've, I've obviously mucked up my sums. He came instead to a different conclusion, which is that the, the earth couldn't possibly be round. There was, that was the only way that you could explain uh, what he was seeing. So he wrote a letter to the King of Spain saying that uh, all of his life, of course, he'd been working on this theory that the, the earth was a globe, but he changed his mind. And now he thought that actually the earth wasn't a sphere after all, but uh, shaped like a pear. And at the end of the pair was something akin to a woman's nipple. And my favourite bit of this is that as you were sailing up the nipple, you must be sailing closer to heaven. <laughs> now, OK, I mean, that for me has got everything, right? Woman's nipples, right? <laughs> like any story that includes that is, is by by me. Um, but also what I really like about this is that um, despite the fact that Columbus wasn't a nice man, actually it kind of goes back to what we were saying right at the very beginning of this conversation, the idea about being wrong and accepting that you might have got something wrong. I think there's something really powerful in that. And for somebody who had spent their entire life on this theory that the earth was shaped like a ball, to in his later years decide to overturn that with a new theory because that's what the evidence to him suggested. I do actually think there's something quite profound in that. I think I might have misjudged which one of you was the Freudian, by the way. <laughs> uh, the, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I love talking about that and also thinking of evidence. I remember Howard Zinn, the anarchist historian, when he wrote The People's History of the United States of America, he had a whole bit about Columbus's kind of just the, the violence of Columbus and the genocide. And, and a lot of historians like were furious with him. And they said, well, where exactly have you got all this evidence from? And he went, oh, they're in Christopher Columbus's journals. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of... <laughs> Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Once we fall, and I suppose, you know, definitely in science, you know, this can be a problem sometimes from critics from the outside and maybe within science itself, that bit, which is that once you have the, and I put inverted commas around this, but once you have the satisfying myth or idea that when it gets over to, you know, think of someone like Fred Hoyle, for instance, you know, mm -hmm. Fred Hoyle, he was a, a brilliant scientist, but he would not accept the, the idea of the Big Bang, he came up with that term to kind of belittle that idea. And uh, and now is predominantly remembered in popular culture as being, oh, he was that idiot who didn't agree with the Big Bang. No, he wasn't an idiot. He was really smart. He was brilliant. But he had the version of the universe that fitted his mind. Yeah, that's yeah which right. I, well, I, I think is fine, though. I think that's OK. It's just it's the it's the shutting down of of uh of of other view i mean i think it's there are definitely lots of really well-respected physicists who are like okay i don't go along with that theory because i see it this way but it's like it's this idea of not having intellectual humility that's i think that where the rub comes yeah. sorry adam interrupted you no i think i think that's exactly right that that you know the mark of a good scientist is the one that changes their mind when presented with new evidence and I mean, it sounds like we're just promoting the book now, but that is another theme that comes comes up in the book, which is that, that we have we come beset by a load of psychological biases, which mean we're fundamentally bad at doing that. And so you've got all of these psychological biases like belief, perseverance and confirmation biases and and, and all of these things which make you say, well, well, it's harder for me to change my mind than to both seek out information or evidence that supports what I already think than it is to seek out information that is going to subvert what I already think. Now, the second bit of that is exactly what scientists should be doing at all stages. And we're just not very good at it. But again, the process, the fact that I can describe 
confirmation bias or belief perseverance or other psychological phenomenon or the physical constraints of our senses like our noses and our eyes and our ears and, and so on that is the process of science because our bodies and our psychology and our evolution tells us one version of reality and science tells us another version and we have to square those two things so the the that the changing your mind as a scientist should be the mark of the mark of well how we do it because the, the if you cling tenaciously to an idea despite the fact that the evidence is contrary to that well you're, you're just doctrinal right you're just a doctrinaire and that's not what we do we hope well you are by the way allowed to promote your book because this is a, a book promotion podcast in many ways when we talk to authors who've got a book out so don't be embarrassed about that. Thank you. Um, appreciate that. And uh, I would, I, I wanted to, so, you know, the abridged idea, what, even in your own version, you know, what are the ideas? You must have had some battles between the two of you over, uh, which you have both lost in terms of what are the ideas that you fought hardest for, Hannah, that didn't make the book? Oh, I wanted to do a bit on luck. Um, because I think that that is a really good example of exactly what Adam is talking about there, about that difference between how it feels to experience something as a human and what it looks like when you manage to step outside of yourself and observe it from a, a really scientific perspective. Um, you know, I, I have like loved numbers for longer than I can remember. And, uh, and yet I still you know, won't step over <laughs> three drains in a row, right, in case something falls on my head. Um, I still occasionally play the lottery, just, you know, in part because the dream of winning is worth two pounds. Um, you know, I still act like a very irrational human a lot of the time. So I think those, those for me, are the really interesting ones, that, 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 that time where you have that, that clash, that contradiction between, uh, between what it feels like to experience something and what it looks like from a scientific perspective. We're saving that for, for everything, everything too, everything harder or something. <laughs> the sequel. Yeah, again, so wrong about who I judge the Freudian. <laughs> uh, so, um, Adam, now as a Jungian, what was the thing that you your, uh, your world of morphic resonance, what was the thing that disappointed you of not being able to get it in? No, I, I, I was most concerned with reaching our contractually obligated word count. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, no. and not not causing a, an, an additional deadline extension because believe me there were many so what now now you're performing it live has that changed your uh kind of your, your relationship with some of these ideas that's a good question i think that one one thing that's um you know a minute ago i mentioned how you never quite know what's gonna what's gonna hit with the audience what's gonna resonate with them the 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 thing that Hannah was talking about at the beginning about Georgie Borgie's um, infinite library, the Babel library, that we we opened the show with that as a means of describing, you know, getting around your first question, which is how have you done this about everything? <laughs> well, we're the curators in this process, and they, we we take them through how um, Borges's library actually works because someone built it, right? So 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 this PhD student has actually built a working version of it, which is on the internet and anyone can use it. And there's a picture version of it as well. So you can take any photo, upload it, and it already exists there. Now, I think when the writing process, and all three of us know this, you get stuck into an idea and you write it and you rewrite it and you knock it about and you rewrite it again until the point where you're sort of completely uh, inured to its content and can't recognize the words or the idea that one of the really fun things of standing on stage and talking about at the beginning of the show, the infinite library is that people just fucking love that shit. I mean, they're just like transfixed and, and it's important to be reminded that the reason you included this in the first place was because that was the process that we went through when we discovered it for the first time, but they absolutely love it. And it is, and it, you know, to be reminded that this stuff is stuff, you know, and you studied or written about and actually it's still completely mind-bending when you hear it for the when you discover it for the first time so that's been fun that's it's fun watching the audience go that what and what about for you Hannah yeah I think that's right I think that that is a um a good example I'm trying to think about the other things that we've got in the show I'm suddenly I'm suddenly having a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a mind lack of a little. <laughs> 
um we got free will we got uh senses. oh yeah the free will stuff is really fun yeah it's an interesting thing isn't it that idea that you, it doesn't matter whether free will exists or not you cannot just sit there and go right free will doesn't exist let's see what happens next because the trick is too good nature's brain trick mind trick whatever is I, I remember years ago, I probably told you this story, Adam, a long, long time ago when we were doing Monkey Cage and I got a letter from someone saying, I was listening to the show you did about free will. I've got a problem. I want to ask this girl out, but if free will's an illusion, then there's no point in doing it. And I said to him, well, hang on a minute. Well, what are you, if I say free will is an illusion, what are you going to do? And he said, well, then I won't ask her out. I said, how are you going to make that decision of not asking her out? And then that whole, do you know what I mean? It's kind of a, quite a complex uh and it's interesting. I mean, do you ever get worried that some of these things, I think, can also bring on this kind of existential anxiety that people will, you know, that, that, that sense of a loss of self, despite how deep the illusion is? I mean, I don't think that that's even a, I think that that's not even a theoretical concern. I think that that really has happened. I mean, I, I know that there are physicists who, who uh, go very deep into many worlds who actually find it really profoundly troubling. Um, there are uh, mathematicians, George Price is the one that springs to mind in particular, um, who looked at sort of the mathematical drivers behind altruism um, and it really, he really, really struggled with it. He really couldn't bear this idea that the altruism wasn't a decision that we were making as people. It was something that was driven by evolution that really profoundly, profoundly troubled him. I mean, and then also Cantor, who spent a lot of time um, looking at infinity, he was also, you know, it really exacerbated his, uh, his, his, his existing uh, mental health issues he really really struggled with with those ideas and I do think that these are you know I, I don't think it's too much to say these are sometimes incredibly grand ideas that are just bigger than one brain can hold it's hard isn't it to work out the pragmatic because I, I think on a pragmatic level one of the useful things about for instance understanding how the brain works to a level is to say it's not as much your fault as you might imagine sometimes sometimes people spend their time beating themselves up about mm. what they've done uh, or poor decisions or whatever and go do you know what you were only part of the process mm -hmm. and it might even be let but let's just for the time being say you were part of the process in that decision making and that i think can have beneficial level of kind of the way that you interact with the world but then you can go to the next step where suddenly you can become entirely lost in the universe well, I think that there is a real human trait that we're exposing here that we talk about in the free will chapter, which is, and it's that thing, it's that line that, that Hannah said a, a minute ago, which is that our lives are lived forwards, but understood backwards. And with, with our brains, which are very predisposed to seeking narrative satisfaction and having beginnings, middles and ends to in any story that we want to tell ourselves or others, and that includes the story of our lives, determinism or a deterministic worldview is very much locked into our psychology for, for various evolutionary reasons but also you know random and stochastic reasons as well but with that in mind we apply that determinism to lots of the science that we try and do to understand the world in my field in genetics when I mean, we talk about it a bit the nature nature nurture thing is the the ultimate example of of, de of deterministic worldview or the conflict between determinism and and um other, other non-deterministic um, uh, influences but I think that so often we find the psychological need to have a reason for why things happen maybe we should have should have included the luck chapter because so much of our existence is is simply down to you know shit that happened rather than a reason for this I mean they really, you, the, the, and the, the whole sort of free will argument uh, or the deterministic view of the universe relies fundamentally on there being a chain of events where this happens followed by this followed by that and the question is whether that thing is determined by the thing that came before it or is that determination gone you know runs on rails into the future so again it's our psychology which is causing us to in so many situations in real world scenarios causing us to trip up in understanding the world as it really is rather than how we perceive it to be because our perception is how we understand the world well i think the next book shit that happened would be good because yeah. then you can use the vonnegut asterisk in that one. <laughs> um, that'll look on, on, on the page um i just can't, can't, hannah can i ask you a question about not about the book and i don't know if you want to answer it or not 
just about I, I just because it's something we've talked about a lot on Cosmic Shambles, which is about the Science Museum mm. and, and about their sponsorship. And I know that you have uh, um, decided to, to 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 leave the board of, of of trustees. And I just wondered if there was uh, kind of how you made that decision, how you came to that decision. Oh, with difficulty, <laughs> with great difficulty. I lost a lot. A lot, a lot of sleep over it. Um, and Adam knows because I've called him up about 25 times. <laughs> to, I was going to mention it. <laughs> to uh, talk about the different arguments on both sides. Okay, so I think that um, I know my position on fossil fuel sponsorship. Um, and I think it's the same as yours, Robin. In the end, the reason why I decided that I couldn't stay actually wasn't so much about their stance on fossil fuel sponsorship as it was on the way that they were engaging with debate around the issue. That really was the, the kicker for me, because I do think that this is, this is a really difficult, complex issue. And we are at this very critical turning point for all of humanity. I mean, it's not too grand to say that. And I think that nobody knows the best path ahead. Nobody knows. Um, and I know that there are reasonable and decent people in the Science Museum who care very, very deeply about the climate crisis, who really truly believe that the way that they are approaching this is the right way. And I respect the fact that that is the conclusion that those individuals have come to. I think that that is, you know, I think I'm respectful of the opposite side of the debate to, to where I'm standing. But what I really struggle with is the idea that you could not have intellectual humility about this. I mean, it goes back to what we've already been saying. I think what I really struggle with is that you could be dismissive of arguments on the other side and not just be open and honest about you know engaging engaging with people who have very reasonable criticisms I think that's the thing that I really struggle with and I really hope that I mean this has been going on for a while right I know that I've only just resigned but this is this is something that has been going on for a while this is not the first action that I took that I took you know when I was uh, as a trustee there were other things going on behind the scenes um but I I, I really hope I mean, it's horrendous. The whole situation is just horrendous and I don't like it one jot, but I, but I really hope that, um, I hope that the resignation has the effect that I, that I really want it to, which is that the, the, the Science Museum just reflects on some of the criticism that, that has come and is just a little bit more, approaches this with much more scientific values of 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 openness and and inviting scrutiny and intellectual humility which is the phrase that i keep saying i, I think that's what i really hope for in the future um, i would add though actually i still really really believe in the science <laughs> science museum as an institution and i still really want to be a friend to them you know i'm not boycotting it altogether um, I still really, really want them to succeed in their mission of, of making science accessible to the public. And I and I'll support them as much as I can um, on that. I just on this on this one issue, I just had to take a stand, really. Well, I think that's the, I, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people are the people who are, are making a stand on this now is because they love the Science Museum so much. I mean, that's it, it doesn't come out of, uh, you know, uh, oh, I hate the Science Museum now. It's like it just it, as you said, it's very, very complex. And it does feel now that it, this is the right time that this really needs to be elevated as a proper discussion and not just discussions which are happening within the Science Museum in another sponsored event that happens to be sponsored by a fossil fuel company. You know, there's a and, and so I, I, I think from a lot of people, it comes from a place of love, not from, you know, some, you know, trying to be a, a, a hero or trying to be, you know, that the, it, it's there's lots of. Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite places in the world. Mm. Um, Me too. Spiritual home. So um, it's not as good as the Natural History Museum, but it's but it's close. <laughs> it's got yeah. less Darwin in it. That's for sure. So I go to the V&A and look at the wallpaper. <laughs> um, thank you both very much. The absolutely the guide to absolutely everything abridged is, uh, as you know, available now. Your your tour dates. No, I'm not sure if this is going out. When exactly when this is going out? So you can say any of them because in the block universe they're still intact as far sure. as we know. So sure. whereabouts uh, are you going on your tour? Uh, well, Birmingham, Bristol, or Bristol Leeds. Oh, I so I did them in order. Yeah, on the 5th of November, oh, Birmingham on the 6th, Leeds on the 7th, Manchester or Salford actually on the 8th, 
and then we're in Oxford at the Sheldonian on the 10th and then Brighton on the 11th and then Ali Pali on the 16th and then we're going to have a lie down brilliant that's pathetic of course oh you? no it is oh you're the worst person to say yeah, that yeah, to, yeah, right? yeah. I, I, I just I, like I, to say I'm not having a lie down I'm immediately then going to Germany um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Adam's I'm on your side down. Robin I'm on your side so, so yeah <laughs> lazy um thank you both very much it's it is a, a tremendously entertaining uh, book and as you said also it's I, I I think some people might initially as, as you were saying might think oh it's just a kind of a, a book of a bunch of facts but it's far more than that and I, and I think, as you said, it has uh, it has a, a you know narrative in it, and it has uh, you know a great journey of sometimes you know almost the kind of ideas that give you cosmological vertigo every now and again. Um, and you're taking our uh, producer Trent Burton with you as well. We are. Good. We're going to try and give him as much cosmological vertigo as he can. <laughs> yeah, please do. And it's it's not as if he's found so many other ways of being lost in the universe either. So uh, also, <laughs> I will be, uh, I'm continuing my 112 bookshop tour. I don't know where I'm going to be by the time this goes out. But I am doing the Berkhamsted Book Festival, which also has lots of other wonderful people uh, at it, including Alexis Sell and Mark Steele and Pragya Agarwal and uh, Natalie Haynes and Claudia Hammond. So that's on the... Wait a minute. Uh, Wait a minute. You live in Berkhamsted. You can't talk about... Like travelling all over the country and how hard oh, no, no, it is. No, no, and then... Don't worry. The day before I'm doing Southampton and Winchester, and then I finished in the Berkhamsted okay. Book Festival at seven o'clock that night, and then I have to get to Southwold to do uh, an 11 a.m. show on the Monday morning before returning to London to do uh, King's Place. Then I'll be going to Scotland. So, so <laughs> all, right, all right, fair, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> one of the locations is near where I live does not mean that the other 111. This is the kind of bad science that is going to affect your sales, Adam Rutherford. Um, anyway, yeah, and on the 8th of November, I'll be at King's Place. Oh, don't you live in King's Place? No, I don't live in King's Place. I do some gigs there sometimes at Christmas. Well, that means you live there at Christmas. No, it doesn't. They're about three hours. Well, anyway, so, uh, Hannah, it was really lovely to talk to you. Thank uh, you. Thanks very much for this. <laughs> Josie Robbins, Shambles. Thank you to Trent Burton, our producer. And uh, we'll see you. Cheers, Robin. Thanks, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. You can get signed copies of Adam and Hannah's book and Robin's book from the Cosmic Shambles bookshop, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Rate, like, review, subscribe, five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Baycast, all that business. Have a great week and we will be back with a new episode next week. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Cosmic